Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we welcome back in studio Stephen Watson from Stack Magazines. He's got some exciting new launches, including a magazine Trump's playing cards, plus a sensible guide to Split and its islands, and also a fascinating book on the faded grandeur of abandoned cinemas in America. Stay tuned. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, we welcome a good friend of the show in the studio, Stephen Watson from Stack Magazines. He gives us an update on his business with some great titles in hand and a little surprise for those that like Trump's playing cards. Here is Stephen with more. Look, <laughs> I'm really, really pleased that things are opening up now and, you know, magazine shops are now open and people can go in. But when it was literally illegal to go in a shop, um, it was quite good for us <laughs> because it meant that more people were buying things online. Of course, the problem with that is that coincided with the period when it was harder than ever to actually get physical things to people around the world. So I would say the two cancelled each other out, really. We sold loads of magazines, but then it cost us loads to actually get the magazines to people. And was there any change in terms of the content uh, that people were looking for? Or was it pretty similar, perhaps even a bit escapist in a way? No, I, I don't think we saw a difference in the type of magazines that were being bought. We've seen a big uh, influence in terms of the content that is produced. And I mean, you know, it's, it's like de rigueur over the last year to have the editor's letter first off mentioning the pandemic and publishing under these conditions. And I mean, because obviously a lot of the magazines that we uh, work with are all about getting out into places and, and telling stories. And so a lot of the magazines had to change that, you know, and figure out, can we make this magazine remotely? Can we do this without physically being in a place? And so for some of them, that meant that they realized that they could work with local contributors and kind of guest editors as a, a way of getting it done. And obviously that makes it much cheaper for them because then they're not paying to send people off to places. Other magazines realized that actually it's better to come at the subject matter from a different perspective. So rather than maybe going to a place, you're thinking about a theme or, or giving yourself like a different structure to work around. And I think, you know, kind of, as with lots of stuff with the pandemic, there have been kind of unexpected benefits that have come out of it. And I think that there are some magazines that you can see now there, you know, so for example, they're still continuing with the guest editors, even though travel is starting to open up a little bit more. And it'll be interesting to see whether they, you know, continue that in the long term. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, even as a reader, I think it was almost a test to their creativity as well. Because, of course, sometimes you can do the easy option. But I think some magazines, they really challenge themselves to do something different. For example, a travel title. How how are they going to cover this? And, of course, I mean, as usual, you do bring a few titles. For example, I see an old favorite here, uh, MacGuffin. I mean, uh, I think they're pretty consistent, right? And, and I think they have the new issue. Tell us a bit more. I mean, the... But MacGuffin, I think, is one of those magazines now where it's just an absolute banker every time. Um, so the, the new issue, issue 10, is the bottle. And if anyone's seen MacGuffin before, they'll know it's all about each issue is kind of dedicated to a different overlooked piece of design. 
And I mean, they just do stuff in there that, that so there's a, a story, for example, a photo story that shows the molds that are used to make glass bottles. And I mean, that's probably about the least glamorous thing that you could <laughs> hope to, to have a photo story about. But the way they've shot it just elevates it and turns it into this fascinating thing where you think oh god yeah of course these bottles were all made somewhere apparently like one of these presses can like get through like a million bottles in its lifetime or something it's like have i drank a bottle of beer like that came from that press that i think that they do such a good job of finding the kind of exceptional stories in the everyday and that is why i'll I'll always be looking for the the new issue of mcguffin and the one by its side i have to be honest i don't know that one what (laughs) what, what is the name introduce me very different very colorful yeah Uh, tell us a bit more so i mean basically when when i knew i was coming on here i thought i've got to find a couple of magazines to tell people about so mcguffin everyone should know about that everyone should read it this other one is called yep yep and it's a new magazine out of hong kong and it was produced as a response to, uh, first of all, all of the, the protests that were taking place over there and then the, you know, kind of the more repressive government that they are currently sort of moving into. And basically, they just they want to show all this stuff is happening, but we don't want that to be what people know Hong Kong for. And we want to show just this like crazy exuberance in the art that's being produced so it has almost no words in it it's mainly um, photography really beautifully produced and the cover story uh, or the, the cover shot sorry is from this story which is just completely bonkers insane shot uh, insane story with this um it is by a photographer called kenny x lee and there's a bodybuilder and a very skinny chap in a park in Hong Kong. And the the bodybuilder is uh, like, I think they are a a trans rights activist. And I struggle to kind of like neatly summarize uh, what I'm flicking through here, but these are really extraordinary images. It's fabulous. I mean, it's, (laughs) you know, I I can see you from a distance, you carrying the title. It's quite something. I quite like it, actually. So, so that is yep, yep, and I would encourage everyone to uh, to go and have a look for that. And Stephen, I have to say, I think most magazine fans and, and I think listeners from the stack as well, they would enjoy. I know it's not out yet, but I would like you to give us a preview of the stack trumps playing cards. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. This is a dream com- coming true. When I when I received your press release, I was like, oh my god, that's that's interesting. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I just well, okay. So this is something I've been thinking about for quite a long time. I I guess I'm always looking for ways to to shout about the kind of the range of magazines that are, are being published. I have a nine-year-old son who uh, has got lots and lots of Top Trumps packs. And so I basically thought it would be fun to make a Top Trumps pack out of independent magazines. So that's what we've done. It's called Stack Trumps 2021. Uh, So it's all independent magazines that are published this year. You get 30 magazines. Each of them has the key stats from that magazine. So it's like issue number, number of pages, the price, things like that. And then the idea is that you kind of play against your friends to say, you know, okay, all right, I've got MacGuffin. This is 208 pages. Oh, no. (laughs) Obviously, it's just kind of silly, really. It's like a bit of fun. The idea is that 
we're going to have the packs in hand for the start of November. So uh, hopefully a good thing for people to be buying for like Christmas gifts and sending out. But it's also one of those things which I have a bit of a track record for doing where you go, oh, yeah, that would be really fun. Let's do that. And then you get into actually making it and you realise that going to 30 different publishers and telling them about what you're doing and getting the rights to use their cover and then going through and making sure you've got all the stats correct for 30 max it's like oh <laughs> this is this is loads of work it's more serious than you've imagined exactly exactly but it is going to be worth it and um it's been really really nice to to see the responses game well the interesting thing is quite unique i mean and i'm glad you were thinking and you did it because otherwise somebody because the idea is just is just excellent as well Thank and you. as you say a perfect christmas gift as well tell us about stack magazines i know you can buy particular editions but you still do the surprise one right which okay. is also quite fun to do it right yeah yeah, yeah. well so the, so stack really is the subscription so mm. uh, with stack you get a different magazine every month you never know what you're going to get next but it's always the, you know these types of magazines and i think i mean look i started that like 13 years ago and i had a job at the time like you know so this was definitely a thing that was kind of in my spare time and so really the, the whole sort of surprise element was kind of for ease you know it's like how can you just make it really easy to put a new magazine in front of someone every month But that's turned into the main thing that people respond to. The the thing that people really want from Stat more than anything else is to be surprised. And so then that kind of gives me carte blanche to, you know, when I'm planning the year and what's going to go out, I'm really trying to make sure that like, oh, okay, we're going to send this one in December and then this one in January. So like, for example, the, the mags we're sending in December and January are going to kind of speak to each other but in quite an abstract sort of way and it's when you start to get that sort of relationship between the magazines through the year that's when i think it gets really sort of satisfying thank you Stephen. always good to see you and for more info go to stackmagazines.com And now we head to Croatia to speak with Jasmina Knezovic, Croatian-American writer who just released her travel title on Split and its islands. It's called A Sensible Guide to Split and its Islands. A mix of things to do there, plus lovely history, and it has a very practical format as well. Here is Jasmina telling me more about the project. It's a small book in the color, a very bright blue, and it's actually a funny story. I kept trying to capture the blue of the Adriatic for the cover, and I took so many pictures, and I tried to find the corresponding codes online, and in the end, we sent, uh, settled for a Pantone blue that's cheerful, like the sky and the sea. Um, my friend Leda, actually, she designed the book. She has a studio called Chow Chow Studios, and I'm happy our friendship survived because it was a lot of work in the end and very last minute. Because although the book's quite small, as you said, in formats, there's so much content in it. I mean, it's very surprising because it's not just about kind of which restaurants to go. You talk about the history, the language. It's a really in-depth book in, in a way. That's true. There's a lot of history because I actually studied history. I did a PhD in history. So I came across so many interesting tidbits in the archives when I was in Vienna and Zagreb. It was actually my favorite part, but I couldn't include all of these stories in my dissertation. So I thought it would be interesting to incorporate it and share this knowledge with people in another way. So that's why throughout the book, it's not just like another history book or a travel guide where the history is in the beginning, but the history is throughout, as you say, in the interviews and the architecture and all the stories actually. So I think it's more of a 
cultural and historical guide in that sense. And you have uh, a personal connection to the place as well. Tell us a bit more about it. I do. So I was born in Chicago, but my parents were born and raised in Croatia. And my dad took us to Croatia every summer for as long as I can remember, as soon as he can afford it. So that's where I spent every summer. And actually, I'm still coming here every summer. At the moment, I'm here as well. So we go every summer. And over the years, when people say they're going to Croatia, I love giving people tips. And so I found myself giving friends tips and friends of friends and that's how, and I got good feedback and people seemed to like the tips. So I thought maybe I can do something more and combine the tips with the history that I studied. And Jasmina, not only kind of Croatia, but one thing that I love about your book as well, I don't know, when I go to a place, of course you can look at things online, but I, I find it a little bit overwhelming doing my research online. You get a bit confused. I think with a book like this, I mean, the format is just, it's just so much easier and, and so well curated. Do you think that's why people still prize uh, a book like this, for example? I think that's a good point. Actually, I also become overwhelmed with so many tips and I'm actually guilty of that myself. Once when my parents' friends were going to Dubrovnik for a weekend, I sent them all my favorite restaurants and they wrote back, oh, we need a month to get through your list. Then I realized the importance of streamlining. So that's why actually I don't include so many tips, but just the best of the best, the best coffee, the perfect day, the perfect weekend. I think it makes it easier. And I know you just published and, and there was quite a lot of work in this edition, but tell us, is there a plan for others? Because I have to tell you, Jasmine, as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is asking for other editions in a way. Do you think this could be on the cards? Yes, definitely. It's actually my dream to have a series. And next week, we're already going to Dubrovnik. And I would like Dubrovnik to be the second edition. So I started um, preparing the interviews for this and I'll be there for at least a month doing the research and meeting people. I never been to Croatia personally, but from what, like every single person that I know that have been there, I mean, comes back saying wonders. Tell us what, what, what's special about the place. And let's maybe focus on Split and its islands, which is, you know, what your book is about. Tell us about some of the magical things from the place that makes you, made you fall in love with it. I've been coming here every year and I realized over the years that it's not just a tourist destination with beautiful beaches, which it definitely has and which really spoiled me for other swimming destinations. But it's a historically and culturally rich country with a lot to offer. I mean, just the history is mind boggling when I think coming from America, especially what happens in 300 years over the centuries here. It's a really rich area and there was, it was the at the crossroads of the Ottoman and Venetian and Austro-Hungarian empires and a lot was happening over the years and I think there's just so much to explore. And I thought also that there was a hole in Croatian travel literature and not so many great guides, just like lots of five or 10 best beaches or the best restaurants, but not much deeper. So I thought I'd like to write, write and read something that would appeal to people and show them the Croatia that I like. Toni Morrison actually once said that she wrote her first novel because she would like to read it. And I think the same can be said for me in the book. Have you, what's your background? Have you, did you, have you done some travel writing before or is it something completely different from what you've done in the past? No, I have, I studied history and all throughout my studies, I worked as a freelance travel writer. And actually doing so made me a little bit disenchanted if I'm completely honest, because I realized that a lot, a lot of times quantity trumps quality. And it was usually the tip of the day or the tip of the week. And 
I also discovered or realized a lot of travel writers and bloggers were recommending places they haven't personally been to or verified and places that had a buzz. And I wanted this to be more authentic and genuine and places that I truly liked and wanted people to discover as well. You know, I love travel writing. I like reading travel magazines, but you're right. And, and again, we were talking about looking at tips online. I mean, sometimes I do have this impression that some people, they just write because they, they saw a press release and, and it's almost, do you know what I mean? There's, a, there, there's no depth to it. So I think a book like yours is extremely important. But how do you see travel writing these days? Do you feel hopeful? Is it changing for the best? Or do you still see a lot of kind of those press release types? I feel hopeful that it's changing. And I think actually the pandemic is helping that, a more thoughtful approach to travel. I personally can't imagine, or when I look back at the weekend trips that I always used to do, I can't really imagine going anywhere for just a weekend anymore. And I'd like to stay somewhere for at least a week. I know it's very luxurious, but I'd rather go somewhere longer and try to understand and discover the place a bit deeper. Absolutely. And just mean to tell us where can people find the book? I mean, I'm sure it's available in bookshops. Well, what, what would be the best, best place for them to, to check it out? Actually, it's available on the website. And I don't know if can I mention it here. It's thesensibleguides.com. And we ship worldwide. And it's also available in a couple of cafes and split at the moment. And we're working on the distribution. That was Jasmina Knezovic, and you can find out more about her title on thesensibleguides.com. Finally on the show, let's talk about cinema, movie theaters in particular. Many of the grand old cinemas in the U.S. have been converted to other businesses or simply abandoned. The faded glamour still has something touching about it. And that's how photographers Yves Marchand and Roman Maffre got inspired to release their new book, Movie Theaters, with impressive photography they shot in the United States since 2005. I had the pleasure to speak with both of them. It started originally as a, something like a candid attraction to these uh, ruins when we were younger. And then uh, after uh, visiting many, many places, abandoned places, we, we started uh, noticing what's really... Um, uh... We started noticing all the different uh, details within the architecture and so... What we've been fascinated too is building that um, in architecture that are uh, very uh, mixed within their influence and style. So we especially always been really focused about uh, eclectic building. So we started uh, back uh, in the early 2000s around Paris, but then we went a little bit further in Europe. And we just really, it was really much more moving to us, those buildings that, because they use a lot of style like neoclassical, neo-Gothic, and all those styles are really uh, connected to the idea of time, of cycle of time, of history. And they were ma made to be like that. But we, we were very sensitive to that from the very beginning when we, when we started. And obviously, the movie theater, once we discovered one when we were uh, shooting Detroit, started shooting the winds of Detroit back in 2005. And we visited our first movie theater, which was the United Artists Theater in Detroit, which is one of the very rare neo-Gothic theater in US. There were like, I don't know, three or four of them of that kind of sort, you know? And that was really um, the beginning of our fascination with that architecture. 
because as European, we we do have some theaters, but the one in US that were both made to be theater and movie theater, the size and the amount of uh, detail and fanciness in architecture is something that you couldn't find anywhere else. And so uh, since then, we've been very fascinated with, with that and we start tracking them since 2005 to the 2006. Yeah. You've been all over the country. I mean, because there's cinemas not only in Detroit, but other parts of the US. Was it fun? So, I mean, you had quite a, a long time, right, taking these pictures. So you guys used to go to the US every year or how, how did it work? Or you, or you did in one go everything? We started with Detroit, originally, because we started taking pictures of the ruins in Detroit, and we, 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 we visited some theaters there. And then we, we started uh, looking for some other theaters around the States, and we, we, we discovered around New York, in New York City, and in the surroundings of New York City, a lot of uh, hidden theaters, yeah. theaters that you, you cannot notice from the street. And uh, sometimes used, for example, the, the lobby is used as stores. And behind the stores, you have the auditorium, which is sitting there, not used. And nobody knows this, that. And uh, so we were starting the, um, looking on this website, Cinema Treasures, which is a database, an open uh, database about uh, historic theaters in all around the world. And uh, we started tracking for uh, yes, those old, old theaters, theaters yeah. that, that are closed, but probably sitting there. And we, yeah. Yeah, and we started in New York City. and Yeah, we uh, just discovered that there were plenty of them, plenty around in New York, that there was obviously not only those of Detroit, which we knew already, but uh, yes, they were hidden on plain sight, meaning you could just pass by those theaters that were converted into like supermarket or retail store and just never notice them because they've been closed since the 50s or 60s. And so at very first, we were um, really surprised by the amount of the theater because each very uh, big studio built one in front of each other. So that you got sometimes from, for instance, the city in Newark, which were the very first theater we visited after being in Detroit when we started in the New York area. And in Newark, for instance, there were like three or four theaters abandoned, empty, and within like, I don't know, three or four blocks in downtown Newark. And they've been sitting there since like 50 or 60 years. And we got in contact with that guy, Orlando Lopes, which belonged to the uh, Theatrical Historical Society. And he guides us during this first trip because he knew this place. He knew he had been there a few years before. And so he could talk his way to the manager just get us some authorization. And so we've been, uh, the first, very first week of that project was quite exciting because we discovered that there were really some things that was very interesting. And as we were saying, just on plain side and nobody was really uh, shooting them. And tell me, Roma, for example, what do you feel when you see those amazing, grandiose theaters? Because it is in a way sad because you know it's not there anymore it can be like a church or a shop, uh, but there's something quite poetic. It's hard to understand, maybe because you're both are, are amazing photographers, but, uh, but tell us about both of you. How do you feel when you, when you go to a place like that? It's always moving because all those places also, it's not just houses, obviously. It's, it's, uh, 
it talks about uh, a work of historian community. Uh, now, I mean, it was a really uh, giving the a certain rhythm of love and people would go every day there and it was uh, which is um, quite moving to us yes to see some things that was so common that was so part of the life of the everyday life that went uh, into almost disappearing totally within like 50 years and um it's always yeah it's it's always moving to walk by yourself within those places and obviously some of them are really in a way of in a certain condition and you you could understand that the the, the next step for them would be the the pure vanishing of it i mean they, they will they will just disappear and as photographers that's what we try to do we try to to take them before they're gone most of them or at least before they change i mean obviously and that's when it's a kind of relief, it's when they're taken back by people and renovated. It's not the same feeling, obviously. It's not uh, the same poetry within the... Because obviously decay and dust and the, the fact that you could feel the flow of time looking at the dust, looking at the peeling paint, gives them a kind of romantic feeling that we obviously like as photographers. But they couldn't stay like that forever, so... One of the things which is always great is to, to see them, I mean, moving on and be renovated or be uh, finding people that care about those buildings and that history because those are also like, we, we, we also often comparing them into like kind of subconscious, you know, collective memory that is there, that have been there for like, as we were saying, 40 to 50 years that everybody forget about, or not everybody, but a lot of people forget about because also the neighborhood where they are, people moved around because it's US. So they moved around a lot. So people that used to go there, sometimes they're not even living in, that, in those neighborhoods. So it makes um, the way that they, they forgotten even more, uh, almost like arrays of the collective memory. And as photographers, what we try to do is to, at a little scale, to take them back and to extract extract them and to put them back in the flow of history and that in i don't know uh, 20 50 years somebody could look at the theory of image and uh, remember that those places were there at some point and that also they were in that condition so meaning that at some point the technology evolved and the collective uh, habits evolved to unfortunately bring them to, to being ruined and abandoned. Because that's also what's interesting us is that idea that at a certain point of time, there is a technology, there is a cultural habit around some places. They erected like thousands of the places and they weren't uh, modern enough to survive. I mean, the rise of television, uh, the rise of uh, now the smartphone and the, you know, the incredible, I would say, um, speedness in the, um, in the world today. That was Yves Marchand and Romain Maffre, and their book, Movie Theaters, is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen again at monaco.com 
or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. Here is Paola with Cinema. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Cinema, cinema.